This will be an introduction to the U.S. government's Feed the Future strategy. And after the, does that hurt your ears? It, it, it seems to me like, yeah, it seems to me like I can, I can modulate myself better than I can modulate that. Is this all right? All right. After I turned in the title of the talk and started working on it, I realized that there are some other new currents that are going around. And so I expanded this to a little bit more. Let's see if I can figure out how you change the slides here. Ah, all right. I apologize that I did not take the time to draw this beautifully with PowerPoint, but it probably would have been wrong anyway. Roughly, roughly the circle is the beltway, or the, the line around the outside is the beltway. Over at the top here, we've got the Farm Bill, which is legislation, which is Congress. The White House up there at the top, which is the executive branch. Over here, the National Academy of Sciences which is an independent agency, and its leadership is elected by its own members. Here, and, and those, those three roughly are, are where science policy comes from. Congress, the White House, Office of Science and Technology Policy, and the National Academy of Sciences. Down here, we've got um, Department of Agriculture and all of the other departments, which is where science policy goes to comes to us to execute it. That's why we're part of the executive branch. It's our job to make it happen. You can also see National Institutes of Health is part of the executive. National Science Foundation is part of the executive. And then outside here is what in USDA we call the partnership. That would be universities, research institutes. For USDA, our primary partners are the land-grant universities. Um, and that dates back to legislation that goes all the way back to the Lincoln administration in the 1800s. USDA, the National Academy of Sciences, and the land-grant universities were all founded during the Lincoln administration, so that interaction has been going on for a long time. A rough outline of where, where I'm going to try and take us in this half hour, a, a brief review of our research agencies, what the strategy is, its principles, based on country investment plans and complementary investments, implementation. Then this is another new current that I'd like to touch on briefly, the new biology for the 21st century National Academy of Sciences report. Um, are, are any of you familiar with this? Okay, then that's probably worth a few minutes. Some other voices, and then I, I hope I'll get this far, which is implications for US researchers and also for science teachers, people that are interfacing with young people that might be potential future sciences. Um, USDA has four agencies in the research, economics, and education mission area. The ag research services where we do research, as well as the economic research service. Then we also have a statistics service, and then the agency where I work, the National Institute for Food and Agriculture, we fund research. So you saw in NIH, doing research and funding research are in, in one institute. In USDA, they're separate. And, and that's historical reasons. Over the past 130 years, sometimes they're in one agency together, and sometimes they're separated. 
depending on the wisdom of Congress and how they want to set it up. <coughs> NIFA is actually a new agency, the National Institute for Food and, and Agriculture, since this year. It existed before with a different name. And we were renamed in conscious emulation of the National Institute of Health and some of the other national institutes in the hopes that it will increase our budget. <laughs> because it wasn't really clear to Congress or many people that the Cooperative State Research Education and Extension Service was a scientific agency. Our mission on the web page to this day and up until now has been simply very sort of vanilla to advance knowledge for these particular subjects. You can see it's very broad, ag, environment, human sciences, to advance knowledge by supporting research education and extension. Very broad. We have two mechanisms, national program leadership, which is similar to what Susan Daniel talked about, program management, and then, of course, funding. Well, actually it is different because the program management function includes both of these, leadership and funding. The Feed the Future strategy, and I'm quoting now directly from their material, is the U.S. government's global hunger and food security initiative through which the U.S. works with host governments, development partners, and other stakeholders to sustainably tackle the root causes of global poverty and hunger. We saw the Millennium Development Goals about a half an hour ago, those of you that were in the room when Paul spoke about um, solar cooking. The number one goal there is eradication of poverty and hunger, and there have been setbacks in the last few years, as we all know, with the food price shocks and the financial crisis. Food, Feed the Future is this administration's, the Obama administration's effort to redouble, their, their redoubled effort to get toward that. <coughs> the Feed the Future strategy is the U.S.'s part or, or approach to a global activity that began this summer. No, that's wrong. That should be 2008. It was, no. It was last summer, so we're in 2010. Pardon me. Time is rushing on. It was last summer in Italy to act with scale and urgency. This administration pledged $3.5 billion over three years. And with the U.S. pledge came $18.5 billion from other donors, setting up a multilateral fund to which low-income countries can apply. The key objectives of that international funder to accelerate ag sector growth, improve nutritional status. These are the two um, substantive biological goals, and then many cross-cutting goals, um, environment and gender being two of the ones that we're most familiar with. The principles are, are new. The idea of wanting to reduce global hunger. It's not new. We've been working on that for decades, but the principles of this one are new. Country-owned plans, strategic coordination. That means coordination among the donor nations. That's been talked about in international development circles for maybe 20 years, but it, it, there has not been any real effort by the donors to do it, so that is new. Comprehensive approach means 
including such considerations as environment and gender, leveraging multilateral institutions. That is things like the World Bank, which is a bank, the Food and Agriculture Organization, which is an advisory body. And then um, sustainability of the effort, we hope that we'll see that. Don't know what will happen when the administration faces new elections. Accountable is already remarkable how accountable they're trying to be, if only so far, at least in letting us know what it is that they hope to achieve so that we can see whether they did it or not. These are the Rome principles are those the same, same five principles here. And this is more detail on them. Country-owned plans, there are certain focus countries a long list there, but the ones that are furthest along in developing their country-owned plans are Ghana, Rwanda, Haiti, and Bangladesh. <coughs> the idea of a strategic partner company is, country is quite new for the U.S., that we would work with advanced emerging economy countries, Brazil, India, South Africa, and possibly Nigeria. And as, as you, can, you can begin to get the idea, we want to work together with other donors, we want to work together with strategic partners, Something quite new in this administration's approach is that it's not trying to be seen as here's the U.S. coming to the rescue. It's, it wants to be seen as, if you will, a member of the community of nations or, or the, the, the family of nations working together. They want to be seen as part of a group. There's that strategic coordination amongst donors. I'm probably going to skip reading all those points, but they are pretty remarkable if you have time to read them from where you are. Comprehensive approach, we talked about productivity, private sector growth, gender, environment, sustainability, capacity building, trade, governments, policy, all of those we've seen. The new one on this list is the first one, productivity, agricultural productivity. All of the other issues on there have been part of <coughs> development policy for 10 or 20 years. This is the first time we've seen productivity in my entire career since the 70s. Since the first successes of the Green Revolution, productivity has not been on the list. And now it's back. Um, we talked about the benefits of multilateral institutions funding and advice and that idea of timely, sustainable funding and accountability. The country investment plans will be in two phases. I wonder if anybody can give me a time cue here. Five o'clock. Country investment plans in two phases. For, in phase one, donor aid will support developing the plans, constraints analysis, feasibility studies. Phase two comes when the country investment plans are ready, and that ready is defined as not only technically sound, but also documentation that there has been consultation with the stakeholders in the country and documentation that the country has made a commitment, including an enabling policy environment. Investment areas that are anticipated, it is thought likely that country plans will include such things as new crops and livestock, post-harvest value chains, risk and vulnerability reduction, productivity and income gains. And interestingly enough for us, country-led is not being seen as government only. They're also in thinking, they are also including, and, and in these four countries that are well along, this is already happening, 
NGOs, private sectors, farm organizations, women's groups, civil and religious actors, local governments, local universities. The NGOs have been knocking at the door for a long time and they have been seated in some of the, some of the planning tables, but this is the first time to my knowledge that it has been so broad by design. The civil and religious actors gives us a moment, perhaps interesting to this group, is to ask whether there's a role for what are being called faith-based organizations. We've got some of them represented here at our meeting. The principle for involving FBOs, if you'll pardon my, my acronym, is, is the principle that was outlined in the Food for Peace Act that is basically neutrality, whoever can do the job best. <coughs> USDA has something which is called the Center for Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships, established by Obama to partner with these challenges. And it just that center just produced an annual report, which is quoted from here that FBOs are critical because of their natural network of outreach. Um, they can synergize and expand what the, what the government programs can do and have their own complementary programs and resources. It went on to specifically state that church organizations can be some of the most capable organizations. And I don't know if you can see, I think you cannot see the bottom from the back. And by the way, there's some very nice seats up in front, and I don't mind if you walk right in front of me. The bottom line here is that their projects with FBOs have greater sustainability than with many other local NGOs. And there, there are other statements about about the ability to provide synergies and outreach and capabilities. Those statements were all general about FBOs in general. But this last one about sustainability was specifically the case studies were in reference to Caritas and the Silesians, which are both Catholic organizations. And um, I know from my own experience, and I'll digress to be personal in just a moment because Susan gave us that precedent, from my own experience, when I've been working abroad, I, I tend to look for the Protestant missionaries to worship with. But when my national program colleagues need an organization to help them with seed distribution, for example, they go to the Catholics. And that, seeing that witness really changed my thoughts, my personal thoughts about the Catholic Church. And it it also makes me think what a huge witness it would be to the world if the Holy Spirit would ever allow us to be united again before the last judgment, which I don't know if it will. The, um, there's, in addition to the country-owned plans, country investment plans, which we've been talking about here, there's also anticipated to be something called complementary investments, which would mean funding for U.S. research, funding for our universities to collaborate with developing countries or international centers. <coughs> um, the research would presumably be designed to support the priorities that come up in those country investment plans. Um, there is a request for new funding of $1.3 which would include both our contribution to that multilateral fund and U.S. funding. Um, it defines ag research very broadly, this budget request. Um, basic, adaptive, and applied research all along that spectrum. It includes extension in education and capacity building. It includes everything from conservation, ag, organic agriculture, modern biotechnology, transgenics, 
short term to long term, and of course these cross-cutting issues. So it's, it's very broad, and it will depend on what the countries specify. The implementation, let's see if I've skipped it, the State Department will have an office to coordinate the Feed the Future strategy. That person, as of Thursday, was not yet appointed, but they do have the two deputy coordinators, one for diplomacy and one for development, development being research and development. Between them, these, those two coordinators, although they are State Department staff, do have USAID and USDA experience. They seem to be well qualified. Another new thing about it is this, what they're calling the whole of government approach, in that every agency that can contribute to it has been asked to do that, to contribute to it. It's the first time in my career that we have been asked all the way down to my level, to the worker bee level, what do you think? Contribute to, to what we're planning and working with state, working with USAID, commerce and defense. I don't actually know if NIH is involved in this or not, but it would be, and as you'll see in a moment, even more, it will be extremely relevant to have their expertise. Because nutrition is going to be an important part of this. Productivity is number one, but nutrition is also in there. For the first time in my career, there's a memorandum of understanding between the Department of Agriculture and the Agency for International Development, called the Norman Borlaug Initiative. And it, it um, is subject to the available availability of resources. And the, the hope, I guess, is the word right now, not quite a plan yet, would be that um, in addition to, well, let me start off with what we know we're going to do. Both USDA will be looking within its existing programs to see which ones have global impact or could have global impact if they were nudged in that direction. And that'll be not only our in-house research and ag research service, but the programs that NIFA funds, the National Agency of Food and Agriculture funds. USDA, as you can see, has a much larger budget than, pardon me, USAID, 14 million. USDA's whole research budget is about 2.8. So this is massive compared to us, but most of that 14 million has not been for agriculture, at least for the last, oh, since the 90s, most that research has been a tiny part of that, and we expect that it will grow. The, the, uh, the memorandum of understanding, we hope, will be, build co-funded research, including competitive grants. And those likely areas for collaboration are the same as we mentioned earlier, productivity, crops and livestock, reducing risks, um, environment, food safety and quality includes, the quali food safety and quality includes nutrition and that's where the, our colleagues in health might become involved. And market development is very important. So that would be um, economics research, marketing research, not just biology. I mentioned that we, we hope for new competitive grants programs that will allow our partners, U.S. universities and research institutes, to work with developing countries. And um, a committee will be set up not only to manage that, but also to encourage any entity, any one, to submit innovative ideas to this. The second current that I want to talk about is this report called The New Biology from the 21st Century. This is a report from the National Academy of Science. 
So whereas Feed the Future is coming from the White House, from the politically elected administration, this is coming from the technocrats, from the independent scientists. It was requested and sponsored by NIH and the National Science Foundation. So to, to us in USDA, it was noteworthy that we were not involved. Um, and yet, as you'll see, some of the conclusions do pull us directly in. The questions were how best to capitalize on recent technological and scientific advances that allow biologists to integrate research and, and begin to work on complex biological systems based on the huge amount of data that we're now gathering. And specifically, what fundamental biological questions are ready for major advances? And their answers to that were sustainable food production, protection of the environment, renewable energy, and improvement of human health. Um, in, in USDA, we were surprised to, to see ourselves right in there, food production, environment, <coughs> parts of renewable energy, bioenergy are things that we work on, and health is something that we work on in the sense that food is the first prerequisite for health and nutritious food as well. So we are excited um, to see ourselves in this. Once again, a new national interagency initiative. These, there's lots of calls for new national interagency initiatives right now swirling around in occurrence within the beltways. In biology, in science, including additional funding is being called for. Will it come? We do not know. In this case, the um, new biology for the 21st century is calling for particularly priority to information sciences, which means not our research per se, not ag research per se, but information technologies that will enable our scientists. Nonetheless, we are inspired by what they have seen as the important biological questions of the moment. So you can see some areas of convergence down here at the bottom. Productivity, environment, and health and nutrition are where Feed the Future and the New Biology are converging. Notice also that the new biology is calling for more resources for graduate training, and Feed the Future is calling for education and capacity building, albeit in other countries. So education is there. Did you say that's for other countries? In Feed the Future, capacity building for other countries, and in new biology, capacity building in our own country. So what's new in both of, in, in what we've heard so far, I've been alluding to that somewhat already, donor collaboration, strategic partner company, countries, collaboration with, within federal agencies, which is being strongly emphasized, particularly in USDA, we do not have a history of, of collaborating between our intramural and extramural research agency. And now, suddenly, we're being asked to do this. We're kind of having some growing pains, but we're very excited about it. The Feed the Future initiative has a public website, which is simply feedthefuture.gov, with a newsletter and a great deal of information, much, much more detailed information, including how you can get involved. Also new is the idea that we may have international research partnerships. There has been no funding for that from the federal government for decades, or very, very little. The fact that that's being stated as something we'd like to do is very exciting. In the biology for the 21st century, what is very new for us is to see our, our sister departments NIH and NSF pointing to some agricultural themes. That is new. And then the, the, the 
appearance of productivity as a priority for research with the lessons learned from the last 40 years on environment and social impacts. There are still other new voices, which I'll try to go through even faster. Just last month, another new National Academy of Sciences report, this one funded by the Gates and Kellogg's Foundation on Sustainable Agriculture, looking at the scientific evidence for the strengths and weaknesses, different approaches to sustainability, and are they transferable to less developed countries? Again, some of its priorities are echoing the previous two currents, production to meet human needs, environmental quality, economic vitality of agriculture, and quality of life. There are yet other voices. Our, our farmers that listened to USDA in the 60s when USDA was telling them get bigger, get out, and they did it. They can't take a truckload of wheat to the farmer's market. They need export markets, and they're pointing out that our economy needs export markets right now. So how are we going to harmonize the, the, the important recognition of the Feed the Future strategy that for a peaceful and safe world, other countries have to be able to have their own food production with our need for export. Um, and they've urged focus on the least developed countries, which Feed the Future is doing, small landholders, which Feed the Future is doing, local staples and local markets. I, I don't know. I think there's still a lot of conversation to take place there. What's going on to date? The importance of productivity and environment, the two together, and the role of science in achieving those goals. And then I'm, I'm trying to get ahead here to what would be important to our listeners here. We're excited about, remember I told you our mission statement was to advance knowledge, period, plain vanilla. Our new director has recently started describing our role as to, to bring focus to meet society's grand challenges, which is different. It's just, just advancing knowledge in general or bringing focus. That, that is different to us. It's 5.15. I'm for the other guy. All right, but we were running five or ten minutes late anyway, so I am going to take a few more minutes. Um, our flagship grants program, AFRI, the Agricultural and Food Research Initiative, already shows some of the impacts of these, these currents, these, these ideas going around Washington. So if you are interested in looking at how they might be implemented going forward, um, our website, which I'll show here in a moment, looking at our, at our um, grants listing page, Agriculture, Food, and Research Initiative, is a good place to look to get an idea of how that might look. This is a summary of what I've gone through already. Whoops, I'm going, I know what I'm doing. I'm going the wrong way. And I think, yeah, this is my last one, so this is my second to last one. Things that you can look for. More grants that ask researchers to assemble multidisciplinary teams to address a challenge all the way from basic research to application. That's different from the way we, advance, we award grants now. It looks like we're moving from a discipline, grants by discipline, plant genomics, animal genomics, um, various other subject matters by discipline, changing from that to a strategic challenge mode. More grant programs asking for global impact, working for partners in developing countries. NIFA, our agency, does now have an AFRI fellowships program. We have a graduate fellowships program um, 
that is new. We haven't had it before. We hope for additional funding, but we don't know yet whether it will be new or trade-off, and we all know the budget situation. Um, finally, here's some websites to what I've talked about. FeedTheFuture.gov. The National Academy's publications website has the new biology for the 21st century. Our website has our grants programs and how, how they are already trying to build in this report from last year and next year they'll probably also try to build in Food the Future. So those of you that are teachers, that are working with students, seems to me like a, a time when there's a lot of excitement to point to in biology and opportunities for them. So I hope you'll share this with them. With that, I am going to maybe have one minute for questions and then we'll go on to our next speaker. Thank you. Jennifer was first and then the gentleman in front. I do. <laughs> I do. <laughs> two two different uh, yeah. biology and then politically. Are, is yours related? You want to throw it in? Program. Wait a sec. Can you tell me how it integrates with the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization? Yes. Yes. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. Um, let me go then to Jennifer's first, and then I'll work, address yours because I just came back from spending. Yeah, yeah, and I just came back from spending a month at, at FAO in Rome, so I, I'd be glad to answer that question. But let me start with the one on animal agriculture. There's two, th three things, I guess. That mode of animal agriculture does exist, and if the private sector chooses to try and develop that in another country on their own, then the, that's one thing. But I don't think the Feed the Future one will do it for several reasons. One is remember that it's country investment plans. The country would have to say, do we want livestock and in what way? It looks like most countries will say they want livestock, but they, they will say it in their own way. And secondly, although that, that model of, all right, we've got lots of corn in the Midwest, and how do we use it economically? Well, let's bring a lot of animals there and feed them. That model is quite different from another model of livestock production, which looks at land capability, sloping land, land that's not terribly fertile, that, that isn't going to produce grain. It isn't fertile enough or it's too erosive, too erodible. There, the, the humble ruminant is often the best way to bring that land into an environmentally sustainable food production mode. So, and, and, and that last one that I raced through really quick, that last National Academy of Science report on sustainability, they're asking that question. 
what, what kinds of sustainable agriculture can we use in, in developing countries? And my, my guess would be that we will see in the crop and livestock breeding, my guess is that we'll see attention to that kind of um, animal production. What about, you asked about FAO. One reason that those five principles are called the Rome principles is because that meeting in L'Aquila was, it was right where, the, it was going to be at FAO. It was going to be at the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization to draw in their expertise, but the earthquake had just occurred. So for symbolic reasons, they moved out to the earthquake city. Then they moved back into Rome to FAO. And FAO is a partner in all of these discussions for their expertise. FAO does not have much of a budget to implement anything, so they're as excited as, as we are about this. And there is a question back there and then one over there. Yes. To what extent are you taking efforts to stop elite corruption overseas and recipient countries and so forth? So that list of countries up there, I've talked third world development for 25 years and had my students do all sorts of things. And I don't hear anything new on this screen this afternoon, period. It's all been said uh. before. And a lot of it's just gone down the drain Corruption, particularly by elites overseas. So, what protections are we voting in to stop elite corruption overseas? Right. To, well, there's a couple of things. One is that that big USAID budget that I showed you does have a democracy program in it that aims directly at that. But what does Feed the Future have? That's the country investment plans. Phase one is the country develops its own plan, and before it will go on to phase two funding, the donors are asking to see. Did you consult with everyone, and do you have an enabling policy environment? That's probably the best that we can do as outsiders, is to go in and say, um, and, and does that make any sense, what, what I mean by enabling policy environment, that there, there are rules and regulations for phytosanitation, for intellectual property rights protection, for, for how the seed sector is, is set up, how the livestock markets are set up, just the whole socioeconomic regulatory system. It is extremely difficult, and 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 there's I don't I don't think anybody. Well, I guess we're all hopeful that maybe this time it will work, but that's why they've tried to pull in everybody from local governments to NGOs to faith-based organizations, and not just talk to the governments, is is to to see if maybe transparency amongst all those groups can can help. Actually, the Heber Project is participating in this, as they are sitting at the table, and they're, um, they're a model that is widely respected. So, yes. Uh, 20 billion were committed uh, at the uh, US uh, conference? Or eight, yeah, just about. You know, I, I don't think I can answer that question specifically, except, I, well, I guess I can do some. And, and go into that feedthefuture.gov site, because they have a lot of information about what the other donors are doing. There have been meetings in, amongst the Asian donors. There have been meetings, uh, the G8 met again in Canada last month to talk about this. And that, that 18.3 plus the U.S., that 20 is... That's other donors. That's not US 18.3. That's other people. 
So, so that's something that, will, it, will they do what they're going to say? I don't know, but it's very exciting what is being said and the fact that it's being said very publicly. Taking up too much time now. Um, our next speaker is